This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Broken Potables. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. We competed against each other on Jeopardy. Kyle ended up winning seven games. And we've been chatting about the show ever since. Each show we start with analysis and recap of this week's Jeopardy episodes. Then we move into a deep dive on a question or category from one of those episodes. And we wrap it up with a quiz. So this week we are covering December 16th through the 20th. So let's get into Monday. We have Kirby Copeland, a data analyst from Cincinnati, Ohio. Patrick Yerke, a software engineer from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And Jennifer Quayle, a wine tasting consultant from Dowagic, Michigan, whose eight-day cash winnings totaled $228,800. Yeah. I don't remember the exact number. I think that puts her somewhere in the like low 20s as far as like her all-time winnings. I think she ended at number 12. And I think Alex remarked about it at the beginning of Monday's game. And I was like, oh, no, he's jinxing her. Yeah, way to go, like, man. Yeah. I don't <laughs> believe in superstition, except that, you know, sometimes I do. Um, I am a little stitious. Yeah. I feel like I shouldn't be because, <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I am both religious and like feel like I'm, you know, into being rational and it sort of goes against both of those in some way. Yeah. Um, and nevertheless, superstitious things pro- pop up. Oh, yeah. Anyway, so yes, I believe that it was at the beginning of this game that Alex made a remark about uh, how she was stacking up, and I, I uh, worried about her from that point forward. Yeah, it's the same thing. Like when you when you call it a perfect game, yeah, you know, it's it's an, it's all of that that jinxing kind of thing. It's, mm-hmm. And of course, there will always be confirmation bias to say like, oh, see, it's true, but yep. then you just ignore the cases where it's not. Right. Anyway, so we get into the Jeopardy round. The categories are a European river tour, the author's characters, Christmas wrapping, but no W on that, give me a V, V in quotation marks, Spark Joy, and Marie's Condo, which is a category about condos. (laughs) Right. Um, Yes, but obviously... Obviously, also a reference to a little joke along with Spark Joy. Um, so the Spark Joy category ended up being about joy, like the emotion and people named Joy and things with Joy in the title. Yeah, but it's but it's a reference to uh, what would you call her? Like a like an organization, like self help public figure, um, almost a spiritual uh, guide. Yeah. I read some interesting stuff about how her work is um, sort of connected with uh, Shinto. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. I don't know much about Shinto. I don't know a whole lot, but when I read it, I was like, oh yeah, that t- that completely fits. Anyway, uh, but yes, uh, none of this was about Marie Kondo and her idea that your possessions should spark joy, but they were they were playing with that uh, that phenomenon anyway. Mm-hmm. I blew the Daily Double, uh, which came at the seventh clue. In the spark joy category at the thousand dollar level patrick hit it and wagered a thousand um the clue was one a buddhist one a south african anglican these two religious leaders co-wrote the book of joy 
but Patrick got it correct. Uh, it is the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. And for some reason, I said Thich Nhat Hanh, which I think is a case of knowing, like ha- getting a little too into the weeds with like, oh, I know a whole bunch of Buddhist writers. Like, yeah. not helpful. Just go for, go for the one that everyone knows, Emily. Come on. Yep. Go for the one that you would have to pull in five seconds. Yep. If you were not also a religious scholar. Yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's uh, people assume that if you're an expert in an area that will give you an edge and yes, to an extent, but sometimes it means that you have too much like highly specialized information, like readily accessible in your brain and you can't remember what is like common knowledge that they would ask about mm-hmm. in a Jeopardy question, you know? Yep. That's why I always get nervous when a music category comes up because I'm like, I'm going to get all of these wrong. You have all of the material available to you to overthink it. Yep. Yep. And then the, the Christmas wrapped category was just like, ah, uh, it, it felt so good to me to know all of these rappers that apparently the contestants also knew, except for Ludacris. I love Ludacris. <laughs> I would say he's probably my favorite rapper. Who's your favorite rapper, Emily? Oh, don't ask me that question. I, I don't know. I don't know. I, Just yeah. too many to choose from? Um, Is that really the problem? And of course, I can, I can remember all of their names right now. That Yes, that's... Yeah, no, I'm, um, <laughs> I Rap is... I, I enjoy it, but it is not my forte. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I got a few of the rap questions, though. I somehow knew Run DMC. I don't know how I knew Run DMC... But I did. Is it um, the only 80s rap trio you can think of? Probably, yes. That might be it. Should there be other re- 80s rap trios I could think of? Um, You know, off the top of my head, I don't remember trios specifically. But mm. uh, but no, I don't. Honestly, I, I wouldn't think of another trio than Rum DMC from the 80s. Yeah. So. Yeah. I missed Ludacris. I missed Outkast. The other two were not really rap questions. I, no. I knew that Harlem is the neighborhood the Manhattan neighborhood north of 110th Street, and I, I knew which character is associated with Whoville. Yeah, um, that one <laughs> That uh, one was yeah, not rap. The, yeah, the question, the, the clue there was uh, Tyler, the creator, raps, I am this character. Tell your homeboy in a red suit to chill before I ban him from Whoville, which I don't know if I've ever heard that. I feel like probably it was not a good rendition of that clue. Oh, well. I don't know. Your, your cadence was spot on. It was like okay. I was listening to Tyler, the creator. <laughs> I'm going to put that on my business card. <laughs> <laughs> One person said this once. <laughs> All right. So we get to the end of the first round. Uh, it's actually a fairly close game. Patrick's in the lead at 5,800. Mm-hmm. Jennifer's right behind at 5,600. And uh, Kirby is in third place at 3,200. Uh, so not not the n- typical pattern for Jennifer, where she just gets off to a really strong start. Right. Um, and then we get in Double Jeopardy, the categories, come on, that's ancient history, early roles, Great Danes, American homes, using worldly adjectives, and an A in medicine, A in quotation marks. Uh, Great Danes was not about the breed of dog, it was about people from Denmark or with Danish heritage. Oh, we got the we got the second daily double pretty early at clue number five. Mm-hmm. Kirby hit it 
in the come on that's ancient history category um at the two thousand dollar level and she wagered four thousand uh the clue was gaius julius vindex rebelled against this emperor after seeing him quote playing pregnant women and slaves end quote on stage and she uh correctly responded who is nero yeah that's who i thought too not i don't remember any specific knowledge of that who else would it be yeah just sounded like nero you know Mm-hmm. That guy. And then we get the third Daily Double, uh, clue number 13, in the Using Worldly Adjectives category, the $1,600 level. And it is superstitious theater folks use this term to refer to Shakespeare's Macbeth. Uh, Kirby also found it. She wagered 3000 And she uh, correctly identified what is the Scottish play. Mm-hmm. And maybe, I don't know, maybe it's because I deal with theater more regularly in my field. I, I thought that that clue would, should be higher up in the, in, the, yeah. in the category. Yeah, it seemed more accessible to me than the clue directly above it, the $1,200 clue, which was a triple stumper. A list of the best ones might include Partagas and Cogiba Siglos. I don't know if I pronounced those correctly. Um, the, that was a triple stumper, the correct response being, uh, what are Cuban cigars? The trick in that category was that every correct response was a noun that had a nationality in it. French horn, Chinese checkers, Cuban cigars, Scottish play, and Greek fire. I am going to take issue with the $400 clue in that category, though. Uh, it's This instrument heard here is a mainstay of the brass section, and it's the French horn. The International Horn Society in the year 2000 at their uh, convention declared that their instrument is not the French horn. It is simply the horn. So huh. there is there is no instrument that is officially called a French horn. Now, it is standard. It's still like, you know, like common colloquialism to call it French horn. And you can call it that and everyone knows what you're talking about. But the official name is not the French horn because there is no proof of its French origin. Hmm. All right. Fair enough. English horn is an instrument also, right? English horn is an but, instrument, and it is actually it's a, called... Is it brass or is it a woodwind? It's a woodwind, It's right? a double. It's a double reed. Yeah, it's a big... Yeah. It's a larger oboe. All right. So this is a really good game of Jeopardy. Um, mm-hmm. We hit uh, Final Jeopardy with Jennifer at 17,200, Patrick at 14,600, and Kirby leading at 19,000, which that's an impressive set of scores. Yeah. Yeah. Very uh, J Archive has the combined Coriat for this game at 47,400. Um, so they got, they got most of the money on the board. Hmm. Pretty impressive. Yeah. They get the Final Jeopardy category TV theme music. And the clue, a short piece for two guitars called Strange Number no. 3, was the first part of the theme music for this drama series that de- debuted in 1959. So Patrick was not able to pull anything. Uh, he bet 4,567, which was a fun number. But he wasn't able to pull anything, so he lost that. Jennifer correctly identified what is the Twilight Zone, and so did Kirby. Now Jennifer bet... 17,000, nearly everything she had, uh, but Kirby made a cover bet mm-hmm. of 15,401 to end up with $34,401. Yeah. 
and is our new yes. champion. So Jennifer Quayle's run ends at eight shows uh, with total total winnings of $228,800. They don't include your last game in your winnings total. Um, because, oh. because like your consolation prize? Yeah, because you didn't, yeah. you didn't win. So is it winnings? Oh, fair. Okay. I don't know. That's my thought because I, I, right. remember, I remember the number in my head being higher than the number that was like put with me because mm, i was like because yeah. i was lumping in that 2000 from my last game and apparently they yeah. don't so okay so that was where she stands so we'll definitely see her back for the tournament and that is exciting because i think that will be and she's she's a great competitor it'll yeah. be fun to watch her play again all right so on tuesday uh we have dagmar klein a systems specialist from rockville maryland uh, Rodolfo Yurichiro Bedoy, an IT project manager from New York, New York, and Kirby Copeland, a data analyst from Cincinnati, Ohio, whose one-day cash winnings total 34,401. Um, and I went with Johnny Gilbert on how to pronounce uh, Yurichiro um, rather than looking at how it was spelled. So hopefully Johnny had it right. Hopefully. Um, yeah. Usually he is. Yeah. Sometimes he, uh, he's not. <laughs> yeah. On on Tuesday and Wednesday, he definitely put like a little bit of an R uh, between the R sound between the U and the I mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. So I'm following his lead. Yeah. So Tuesday's Single Jeopardy, we get the categories Contemporary Reviews of Children's Books, Six Letter Words, The Jeopardy School of Enlightenment, New Millennium TV, Battle Losers and International Yuletide. So they've been sort of uh, heading toward Christmassy holiday kinds of themes all week. Yeah. Um, I imagine they'll they'll turn it up to eleven next week. <laughs> um, yep. <laughs> Which uh, uh, I think I think you mentioned. Maybe someone else. Maybe maybe someone in our Tournament of Champions uh, interview mentioned like, uh, you know, you're going to be on. Make like find out what dates your show mm-hmm. will actually air ahead of time and make sure you study up on holidays or events that will happen, you know, on or around that date. Yes. Yeah. Whether, whether that would have been helpful, uh, cause like, like they definitely went for Christmassy stuff, but like a lot of the things that they, that they went to were like, not your, like your most obvious Christmas trivia. True. In fact, four of the five, clues have to do with food yeah so <laughs> yeah international yuletide yeah you wouldn't guess that it would be a food category not that it is i mean there there was one exception but yeah this is right. this is very much like international christmas food yeah i i thought the uh the battle losers one thousand dollar clue uh so this is they give you the battle and you have to identify who lost it uh, so mm-hmm. the $1,000 clue was Bos- Bosworth Field, this royal house. Dagmar guessed who were the Stuarts, uh, which uh, I don't believe the Stuarts showed up for another couple hundred years. And Kirby guessed who were the Lancasters. Uh, both of those are incorrect. The, uh, it was, as she said, the other one, the House of York, which was the right. War of the Roses. Mm-hmm. And that was the end of the House of York. And the beginning of the Tudor dynasty, hmm. to my recollection yeah that sounds right although i i have struggled to get royal houses sorted out in my head i need to find something that will give it to me in a more narrative 
way than uh than just a wikipedia <laughs> page with a list yes <laughs> yes the the stare at the wikipedia chart yeah. approach has has failed me when it comes to uh tutors and yorks and stewarts and whoever else i'm supposed to know um i'll send you my pile of flashcards contemporary reviews of children's books was a fun category i thought mm-hmm. um Contemporary in the sense of at the time that the children's book in question was published. Yes, not com- um, contemporary to us. <laughs> yes. We had the Daily Double in that. Yes. Uh, it came pretty late in the round. It was at clue number 26. Uh, Rudolfo found it, and he wagered 3,000. The clue is, in 1943, the LA Times said this, quote, tale of a little boy from a very little asteroid was, quote, so big with meaning. I think he thought about it for a little bit before he came up with the correct response of what is the little prince mm-hmm. i knew that was the correct answer i don't think i've ever actually read it i have not read it it's on my list for next year so hopefully i will have by this time next year but <laughs> all right make a note we'll yeah. check in check in at all the right. end of december I'll let you know all right so heading into double jeopardy um, we have Kirby at $800, Rodolfo at 8600 and Dagmar at 4000 Yeah, Kirby had a real rough first round. Yeah, she got quite a few incorrect. Yeah. Uh, including some high-value ones. She she missed an 800 and she missed a 1000 Yeah. That's hard. You know, I mean, miss one of those big ones and you'll, you can lose a lot of your progress. Right. Um, yeah, and if you think of it, uh, especially, it wasn't the case in this game, but if you get it wrong and then someone else gets it right on the rebound, that's a $2,000 swing. Right. Anyway, we, we go into the uh, double jeopardy round, and we have the categories Liquor is Quicker, Earth Science, Tony Award winners, Final Resting Places, Asia, and, quote, ACK, A-C-K, in quotation marks which just means it needs to be somewhere in the word. Oh, I meant to I meant to touch on quiche in the six-letter words category up above, but it, it's fine. I, I have a theory that the Jeopardy writers are uh, are really into the, uh, into, like, uh, you know I haven't seen White Man Can't, White Man Can't Jump, <laughs> um, but uh, foods that start with Q, I feel like they're being a little self-referential, tongue in, or not self-referential, actually, like a little tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. Um, whatever your, yeah because of your quince response yeah yeah no I, I I think I think that I'm attuned to that because because of quince yeah. um yeah but you know like you know that they can't write a clue in the writer's room about a food that starts with Q without without thinking about that mm-hmm. we had we had some potent potables over on the on the left side of the board yes um, we did <laughs> it was called liquor is quicker but it was it was a it was potent, I, I'm gonna, potent potables i'm gonna call it a potent potables category yeah they just um, they've retired that that category name to my knowledge yeah that that seems right yeah i haven't seen it in a long time i don't know why i don't remember where i heard this but i remember seeing from somewhere other than my own brain that uh that category name is no longer in rotation uh hmm. along with I, th- I think actual, I think just straight up potpourri is also out. Okay. They'll, I think some of those old classic category names are no longer in rotation. All right. I disapprove. They can change it whenever they want. It's not like. Right. Um, so yeah, we had, um, 
a bunch of questions about mo- mostly they were cocktail questions mm-hmm. um asking for a grapefruit and vodka cocktail named after a fast dog um that's a that's a great hound and uh, a drink called the Fast and the Furious has rum, coconut rum, and the blue type of this liqueur named for a Caribbean island. That's Curacao. Yes. Dagmar seemed really happy to know that. She just seemed happy to be playing. Yeah. Yeah, she, she did. She was fun. Every response she gave, she was just, like, beaming and just happy. Yes. That was fun to see. Yeah. It sure was. We get Daily Double number two in the final resting places category uh, at the $800 level. Dagmar hits it and wagers $6,000. The clue is the tombs of Machiavelli and Michelangelo can be found in this city's Basilica of Santa Croce. And uh, Dagmar correctly responds, what is Florence? Uh, Which takes her into a pretty good lead at that point, taking the lead away from Rodolfo. Yep, big move. And then we get the uh, third Daily Double in the Tony Award winners category. Clue number 29 ends up being the last clue that we see. Uh, it is Dagmar finds it. She wagers 3000 and the clue is in 2017. This actress won a Tony for Lillian Hellman's The Little Foxes. But in 2018, she did not win a race for New York governor. Mm-hmm. And that actress was Cynthia Nixon. Uh, Dagmar did not get there, so she lost 3000 But still went into Final Jeopardy with the lead. Mm-hmm. She has 16,600. Rudolfo has 13,800. And Kirby just could not get this game going. Uh, she's at 4,400. Which is still a factor given that Rudolfo and Dagmar are kind of close to each other. Mm-hmm. Depending on how bets go. Yes. So they get the category Milestones in U.S. History. And the clue is, Congress declared September 6, 2008, Louisa Swain Day because Louisa did this in Wyoming on that date in 1870. So Kirby correctly responds, what is voted? Uh, She's wagered zero, so she stays at 4,400. Rodolfo responds, what is become the first woman voter? Which also is correct, although longer. Yeah. And he's wagered 4999 so he moves up to 18799 mm-hmm. uh, Dagmar responds, what is become elected? And she's wagered 11111 which is a fun That's number. Fun. Um, <laughs> yeah. So she drops down to 5489 and ends up in second place. And Rodolfo is our champion for Wednesday. Yes. So on Wednesday, we have Dave Algais, an information professional and writer from Saline, Michigan, Christine Hurt, a law professor from Orem, Utah, and Rudolfo Yuricho Bedoy, an IT project manager from New York, New York, whose one-day cash winnings total $18,799. So in the Jeopardy round, we have on the First Lady's IMDb page, The Sporting Life, Baskin Robbins 31 Original Flavors, Peaceful Words, Place on Earth, and Goodwill Toward Men. Diving into those Christmas puns. Yeah, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here, um, but in the Baskin Robbins 31 Original Flavors at the $800 level, there is a there was a clue which reminded me of an old Jeopardy controversy. Did this did this come to mind for you, Kyle? Uh, it quickly uh, came to mind on Twitter. <laughs> y- yes. 
<laughs> All right. Uh, so the, the, the clue is there were lemon, orange, and raspberry types of this frozen fruit juice and cream treat. And uh, Rodolfo was ruled correct in his response, which sure sounded to me like what is sherbet, although it's listed on J Archive as sherbet. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a famous moment, fame, Jeopardy famous, uh, there, there was a moment in Jeopardy a couple years back uh, where Austin Rogers responded, what is Sherbert, and was ruled incorrect. One key difference there is that in Austin's clue, his clue was the main difference between these two desserts that end in the same three letters is that one contains dairy and the other does not. So he was, for, for that clue, you really need to correctly, you need to pronounce sherbet in that way in order to get the same last three letters as the word sorbet. Yeah. Um, in this case, it was asking for sherbet or sherbert, but I think because there wasn't that, that spelling specification, they could be a little flexible about regional pronunciations. Mm-hmm. So, so says Jeopardy, like the, like the Jeopardy Twitter Reddit hive mind. Yeah. <laughs> the hive mind. Yes. <laughs> um, yes, some of the opinions here are my own, and others I, I'm just reporting from the hive mind. Um, yeah. <laughs> to, uh, right back to the hive mind, I'm sure. Yes. The first lady, the on the first lady's IMDb page was... Uh, it was an interesting category, I thought. I thought. I thought, how in the world are they going to fill that with five clues... But we had, um, at the $200 level, we had Hellcats of the Navy, 1957, and Nurse Lieutenant Helen Blair. Uh, that's Nancy Reagan's IMDb page. We had Miss Universe Pageant 1999 as herself judge. Um, that's Melania Trump. Dave, Dave guessed uh, who is Hillary Clinton. That would have been a funny, a funny thing to see. Hillary, I, Clinton. Hillary Clinton judging Miss Universe yeah. <laughs> of, of all the pageants. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we had Master Chef, Master Chef Junior 2017 as herself. Um, so you need to know that uh, Michelle Obama has kind of a like a healthy eating focus as mm-hmm. sort of her her thing. Uh, the War Room 1993 as herself. Um, that's where Hillary Clinton was correct. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Dave who had rung in with Hillary Clinton earlier when the correct response was Melania Trump came came back with Hillary Clinton at the $800 level and, and was correct that time. Yep. Uh, and then uh, at the $1,000 level, Women in Defense documentary short commentary written by in 1941. That's Eleanor Roosevelt. So yeah, that's, that's, the, that's how you get five First Ladies IMDb pages into a Jeopardy category. That's true. I didn't know how they were going to do it. They also could have put uh, Parks and Rec for Michelle Obama. Oh. So she, I'm sure her IMDb page is just huge. Yeah, she's she's done a lot. Yeah. Wait, am I remembering correctly that she was also on Carpool Karaoke? That is something that I have no knowledge of. So I'm going to say yes entirely. I support you in this. Yeah, she was on Carpool Karaoke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's she, she's done a lot. Uh, we got the Daily Double in the Good Wheel Toward Men category at the $600 level. Um, that category was all uh, wheel-related phrases, and Christine hit it and wagered $920. Uh, 
And the clue was, an America in which all seniors live nourished lives with independence and dignity is the vision of this charity with a rhyming name. And she correctly responded, what is Meals on Wheels? Mm -hmm. So we get to the end of the Jeopardy round. Uh, Christine has the lead with 7,520. Dave is in second place at 2,000. And Rodolfo is in third place at uh, 1,600. So Christine has a pretty good lead. And uh, in Double Jeopardy, we get the categories Bride and Prejudice, World History, Musicians Who Act, Literature, Acronyms and Abbreviations, and It's Astronomical. In the Acronyms and Abbreviations category at $400 level, the clue is NIMBY, N-I-M-B-Y, is an acronym for not, quote, not here. And the acronym is not in my backyard. Uh, And that's kind of, that's sort of a recycled clue uh in my first mm. game oh yeah uh, monica couch got a daily double that was yimby means this which is yes in my backyard mm-hmm. yeah i feel like i've been seeing a lot of stuff come back up sort of on the on the two-year cycle wait <laughs> no one year one year cycle mm-hmm. it was only a year ago one year cycle from, yeah uh, not that not that it's you know necessarily that predictable right but they try not to they try not to repeat things too close together so um yeah also in that same category the two thousand dollar clue the sas for short it's kind of the british delta force that was a triple stumper and the correct response is the special air service uh which leads me to believe now i'm going out on a limb here that none of the three contestants are james bond fans Mm. Uh, because at least in the re in like the quote-unquote reboot since daniel craig did casino royale he is he comes from the special air service Mm. even though the original james bond in the in the in the books comes from the sbs which is the special boat service Hmm. that's that's deeper into james bond than i have ever really gotten (laughs) I've, i've seen i've seen a few of the movies but mm, yeah. I have seen um, all of them. Nice. Even all the really bad ones. Like yeah. Moonraker. Moonraker is bad. I'm just throwing that out there. And if anybody wants to get at me about that, that's yeah. that's fine. Yeah. But you should fight him on Twitter. Yeah, you'd have you'd have a <laughs> tough time defending Moonraker. <laughs> anyway, uh, we get the Daily Devil number two real early in the round at clue number three in the world history category. Christine uncovers it and she wagers 1,118 and the clue is in 1918 Woodrow Wilson outlined these one of which was free navigation of all seas Uh, and she guesses what are the 12 points which is close but no cigar Uh, it is the 14 points Uh, and then Alex says something like probably those wagers of yours those weird numbers he he hates it when people don't bet around numbers <laughs> yes <laughs> i don't i don't think that's what threw her off no um, yeah <laughs> i yeah. she probably just like 12 points came into her head she knew it was points and the number that came into her head was 12 so she said 12 yeah, yeah. to be fair uh that it was points is more than i knew i did not i didn't know that one mm. um yeah she goes silent for a long stretch um in double jeopardy um she had a pretty good lead she lost a tiny bit of it um but then rodolfo and dave start to uh, rodolfo passes her dave 
Dave closes the gap a bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, but she hits Daily Double number three as well at uh, clue number 23. Yep. In the It's Astronomical category at the $1,600 level. She wagers 624. She's going to keep driving Alex crazy. And um, the clue is, in 2012, this probe left the heliopause, the boundary of the sun's magnetic field, and headed out into interstellar space. Um, She guesses what is Explorer, uh, but unfortunately, the correct response is what is Voyager. Um, So she drops a bit again. But then she went on a run through the last few clues. Yeah. Got herself back in the lead. Yeah. I, I feel like they defined heliopause for no reason except just because it's it's a cool concept, right? Like, I don't know that it's adding anything to the clue that she needs. Um, right. That it wasn't, oh, now that I know what heliopause is, I know it's Voyager. <laughs> anyway, uh, we get to the end of Double Jeopardy round. Uh, Rodolfo has 11,200. Christine has 14,178. And Dave has 5,200. And they get the category Plants and Trees. And the clue is one of Britain's few native evergreen trees. It's prized for bringing color to winter, and its foliage is often hung in homes. Dave uh, starts to write what is mistletoe, but changes it to what is holly, which is correct. Uh, So he adds 3,018 to his score. Rudolfo does complete the guess of what is mistletoe. Uh, which is incorrect, and he loses everything but a dollar. And Christine uh, guesses what is fur. She loses 8223 uh, So that means that Dave, coming from third place, is our champion. You know, not everybody has the, has the time or, like, thinks to, studying, to study wagering strategy, but we had a few times this week of huge bets from second place. Yeah. Um, yeah, which which is generally a strategic error so yeah uh dave sort of i mean dave dave played a good game um Mm -hmm. but uh sort of lucked out in that in that rodolfo would have been safer with a smaller wager um, but didn't happen to didn't happen to know how to handle this wagering situation i assume yeah don't want to trash anybody's wagers but i also like if you're listening to our podcast like learn how to wager from second place it's so important yeah Um, if you ever get on the show you (laughs) might find yourself in that position Yep, one in three chance. Yeah. Probably slightly higher than one in three, right? Like, don't the doesn't the returning champion have a little bit of an edge? Uh, I think statistically, to... yeah, returning champions yeah. are more likely to have a lead. Yeah, like it's much. I think it's more important to know how to wager from second or third place because you're more likely to, wagering from first place is easier, and you'll you're more likely to be wagering from not the lead. Wagering from second place, it's uh, it's a little complicated, but you know you all can learn it, future contestants. I believe in you. <laughs> um, all right, so that takes us to Thursday. Uh, we have Eric Smith, a bartender from Tucson, Arizona. Pega Goreshi, a penguinologist, which what a cool job, uh, from Chicago, Illinois. And Dave Algais, uh, an informational professional and writer from Saline, Michigan, whose one-day cash winnings total eight thousand two hundred eighteen. Like, how often is a whatever-ologist actually, like, is the first part of that word actually the name of the thing that you're studying? <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's uh, it's so cool. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but she's also from Chicago. Man, so many Chicagoans. Yeah, you're right. Lot, lots of Chicagoans. 
So we get the categories about typeface. Type is in square brackets for some reason. Around the World, 1999 television premieres, canine conversations, which turned out to be like dog-related idioms, mm-hmm. stupid answers, and I'm dying up here, which I think I think it was Dave who consistently hammed up uh, asking for that category, which I appreciated. Yeah. Um, stupid answers is always harder than you would think it would be. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, I got three wrong responses in stupid answers and only one correct. You're like how how hard it can can it be? It's called stupid answers. Um, yeah, they're they're pretty good at putting misleads in these clues. And generally, the gimmick of stupid answers is that the correct response will be one of the words in the clue. Yeah. Uh, so, for instance, at the $1,000 level we had, on the periodic table of elements, which ranks as a great scientific tool, horizontal rows are also called Bs. I guess what are ranks? I was thinking of, uh, like, the term rank and file, which I think is, like, That's, like chess. Yeah, it's from chess, yeah. Like a, yeah. And I was like, oh, well, there's the word rank. It must be that. But, no, it's well, periods. periods. Um, yep. Yeah. Periods go across and groups go down. I don't like stupid answer categories i mean it requires it requires quick thinking and like you said some of them are like trickier than than you would think but yeah uh about typeface was all like typeface like like font related questions Mm -hmm. what's the difference between a font and a typeface i don't know i don't know either yeah but i thought i thought these were pretty gettable um without having to like be a be a uh a font nerd Mm -hmm. um we had a question related to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which I, I'm i a big Buffy fan, although I haven't done a rewatch in a while now. Um, mm. In the 1999 television premieres at the $800 level, starring David Boreanaz, this spinoff from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, which is, of course, Angel, which mm. I never got into. It's a, like the tone is a little different from Buffy, I think. Mm. I need to give Buffy a shot. I never actually watched it. That's, that's Joss Whedon, right? Yeah. Yeah, we've talked about Joss Whedon before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, the first season um, is, like, very, like, more campy, like, creature feature kind of format. Um, but then by the second season, it moves more toward, like, like longer arc storytelling. Okay. And, uh, yeah. Uh, we find the Daily Double at clue number 22 in I'm Dying Up Here. Pega gets it. Uh, she wagers thirteen hundred, uh, and the clue is four of the seven members of the team that first conquered this Alp in eighteen sixty-five fell to their deaths during the descent. She correctly uh, responds, "What is the Matterhorn?" Which I know two Alps. Uh, and the Matterhorn and Mont Blanc. Yep. <laughs> is Mont Blanc an Alp? Yes. Yes. I yes, I spent I spent my time during that daily double being like the Matterhorn is or Mont Blanc is Mont Blanc an Alp? So yes, Mont Blanc is, a, <laughs> is an Alp. Um, <laughs> I believe it is the tallest. Yeah, I think that's right. But of course, the Matterhorn uh, is famous because it's also a ride at Disneyland. Is the Matterhorn also the logo of Paramount? I think it is. Is that right? It might be. Felt like that was why I knew it. Or is it also Toblerone? It is the logo of Toblerone. Okay. The Matterhorn's just everywhere. At the end of Single Jeopardy, uh, Dave has negative 400. Oof. Uh, Pega has 
3,500 and Eric has 5,000. Yep. And uh, in the double jeopardy category, we have the wreck of the F. Scott Fitzgerald, the Hall of Fame position, Culture Club, Mammal Facts, Native Americans, the reality, um, which is uh, video clues from the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian, and then Tea Time with T in quotation marks. I did terribly on the Hall of Fame position category. Oh, um, <laughs> I did pretty uh, well. I think I only missed nice. one. The contestants did fine. Uh, yeah. Eric really, <laughs> Eric really did fine. Yeah, and then uh, and then Dave picked up one of them. Yeah, I I thought to myself that as the as the clues were coming out, we had the Hall of Fame posi- position and then Culture Club, and I was like, oh no, like if we have a, a sports category and then a whole category about the band culture club and we're really going to be in trouble but it turns out that it was um no it turns it yeah no it turns out that it was uh like phrases with the word culture in them yeah mostly pretty much so i did i did find oh i swept i swept culture club yeah i i, I ran that one yeah. yeah but had it been about the band culture club i would probably have been in trouble yeah two thousand um, dollar clue in that category jeopardy, jeopardy so woke yeah uh, yep. The clue is, you may be accused of cultural this 13-letter word if you wear a Sikh-style turban and you aren't a Sikh. And that mm-hmm. would be appropriation. Cultural right. appropriation. That's right. That's a fun conversation to have with people. Yeah. A sort of 201 conversation. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, like you, it, it, you have to... You have to already share a bunch of knowledge and assumptions. I feel like for cultural appropriation conversations to yeah um, to work well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I don't know. That's that's a tough conversation I think to have, as particularly in the like in the in the world of art. You know, mm-hmm. like yeah. I have that conversation uh, like kind of in music, but it's like you know at a certain point art becomes you know ubiquitous uh, or an art style mm-hmm. becomes ubiquitous and it's no longer the property sort of of a particular culture you know what i mean like mm. i i mean i don't i don't consider it cultural appropriation that i am a white man and i play jazz even though jazz right. is you know was very strictly originated by black americans um mm-hmm. like you know that kind of thing like where not i'm yeah. not i'm not trying to say like well, it's not a real thing. Of course, it's a real thing, and it's a real problem. Right. But it's it. There's some gray area. Yeah. And it can be. It can be a yeah, tough I, a tough thing to kind of reconcile. So. Yeah, yeah. There's there is some nuance there, and some questions about how how do you um, engage meaningfully with a culture and a you know with uh, like what what's appropriation and what's appreciation mm-hmm. is uh, a way I've heard it framed that I thought was helpful. Yeah. But yes. Uh, introducing that concept to an audience that you know not all jeopardy viewers might have heard of that yeah. and it's an important thing to be thinking about you know right. um the daily double comes up in, the second daily double comes up in mammal facts at the 1600 dollars level uh eric uncovers it and wagers 3000 and the clue is the 350 or so species of bees include the numbat and he guesses um what is a that um you could tell he was you know sort of that he was definitively guessing yeah the correct response there is what is a marsupial 
But at that point, he had a huge lead, actually. I feel like we've sort of varied the story here, which is that in Double Jeopardy, Eric just took off. Yeah, Eric got most of the clues. Yes. (laughs) The vast majority Uh, of them were answered correctly by Eric. uh, Eric had 26 correct responses and four incorrect responses in the game, which means that he had fully half of the of the responses of the game yeah yeah mostly in in double jeopardy yeah because they they were kind of all in the mix for single jeopardy dave had some unlucky guesses later in that round um but you know they were they were all in there and then all of a sudden it's just all eric yeah eric took um, off he, he found the third daily double also in the culture club category at the twelve hundred dollar level it's this term for the struggles between liberals and conservatives, especially in media, comes from the German Kulturkampf, um, mm-hmm. which is a culture war. And he mm-hmm. got it correct, and he up another 3,000, so he kind of canceled out his incorrect daily double there. Right. And just maintained that lead. So we get to uh, Final Jeopardy with Eric at 21,000. Pega has 1,100, and Dave has 6,000, so it is a lot game. And they get the category Science and Innovation. And the clue, in her 20-plus years working for this company, Audrey Sherman of St. Paul has been granted more than 130 patents. And I don't know what I was supposed to know to answer this one correctly. Did you? How did you oh, do on this one? Um, I, knew that I, I knew that it was somewhere in my brain, but I wasn't able to work my way around to it. Uh, mm-hmm. 3M is, I, I guess it's just kind of a Pavlov kind of thing when you see, like, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and a, like, like a large company with a lot of patents or, a, like, a large company or corporation that's in that area. 3M is kind of the answer. Okay. I, my, my brain went to um, photography for some reason, although mm. I don't think that's, don't think that's right. Yeah. Yeah, 3M does stuff like the like scotch tape and yeah uh, no, just a lot of yeah. stuff adhesives yeah it was yeah. N- formerly known as the minnesota mining and manufacturing company yeah which is where the 3ms come from okay yep so there right. you go well now I, now i know it so uh pega guesses what is the mayo clinic uh so she's gotten to like the right region and wagers 313 dave guesses what is 3m um He's wagered 3,000. Eric guesses what is DuPont. He drops down 4,000, but it doesn't matter because he had a lot gained. So he is the new champion with 17,000. Yep. So going into Friday, we have Claire Marinello Fisher, an ESL professor from Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey. Lucy Yuan, a lawyer from Vancouver, British Columbia. And Eric Smith, a bartender from Tucson, Arizona, whose one-day cash winnings total $17,000. And in the Jeopardy round, we get Alternative Santa Claus is coming to town. Take my rhyme. Each correct responsible rhyme with the word take. World stamp news. Stuff, which is another stellar category (laughs) name there. (laughs) Writers go way back. And on a first-name basis with that show, which is about shows that have first names in them, in the title. Or yeah. that the title is a first name. Yeah, I feel like 
Jeopardy writers and trivia writers in general really like doing stamp stuff. Um, Philately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really know why, um, but I feel like that's like that's a good place to go study if you want to, you know, if you want to improve your, your trivia performance. Yeah. Um, although I think all of these were gettable without knowing anything about stamps. Yeah. Yeah, they were. They mentioned stamps, but the clue was really about something else. It was yeah. It was the the person or the object on a stamp. So yeah, we had a 2018 Swiss stamp has a pot of melted cheese to honor this national dish. Uh, that's fondue. Uh, at the $800 level, we had Hallelujah. Uh, in 2019, Canada issued stamps honoring this Canadian singer songwriter who passed in 2016. Uh, that's Leonard Cohen. But those are examples of that, yeah. Yeah. We get the Daily Double in the Writers Go Way Back category at the $200 level. Which never happens. Has only, um, I, I believe the Jeopardy fan, according to his statistics, it has uh, happened once before in the time okay. since he has been keeping track of that sort of thing. I feel like they should maybe legitimately randomize it, you know, like actually randomize. Yeah. I mean, you can, even if you have zero, you can bet a thousand. So it's not like, you know, putting it in the first row is risking that someone would ring in and not be able to bet anything, you know? Right. Or like, or I shouldn't say ring in, discover the clue and not be able to bet anything. Right. It would make daily double hunting less, uh, less of a strategy. Yes. Because you, uh... Moving to a different category at a you know at at the in the third or fourth row would be like no more likely to find you the daily double than just going to the next one down in the category you're in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I I uh, I wonder if they're moving in that direction or if this is just a fluke. I mean, you you know that I'm f- I fully believe that they are trying to uh, corral contestants back into the top to bottom strategy. So. If they think that people are daily double hunting and they're trying to discourage that, then I guess either truly randomizing... Or putting them at the top. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So that people daily double hunt by starting at the top. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That would would, uh, make a difference. Anyway, the... Back to the clue. Um, the clue. Right, yes. <laughs> the clue, it's in the category writers go way back. The clue is this Shakespeare play is set in 44 BC. Uh, Claire finds it. She wagers 2000 and uh, she uh, gives a correct response of what is Julius Caesar. Uh, I swept the Santa Claus category and the Take My Rhyme category and the writers go way back category. Nice. So I, Good. I liked this one. Yeah. Um, all right, so going into Double Jeopardy, Eric has 3,200, Lucy has 6,000, and Claire has 8,800. And we get the categories Around the USA, Composers and Their Works, Books Filmed with Different Titles, Agriculture, The Marshall Plan, and That's Oxymoronic. And they seemed really scared of the Composer category, which was a real bummer to me. Because mm. they... Did we have something uncovered? Uh, no, we, we got to all the clues. But yes, they did seem... They, I think they left that for pretty late. They did. Which, you know, you go where your strength is and try and build up yep. your lead earlier rather than later. Mm-hmm. The Marshall Plan was like a really good, like, meaty history category, mm-hmm. I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, if you had never heard of that before, you would... By the end of five clues, you've got a pretty solid idea of, you know, 
what is the Marshall Plan, or at least the context. I think. Of or it. yeah, yeah, no, I guess yeah, more more the context. Um, yeah, I, I like when they when they do that kind of thing because like, I ha- I did in fact know what the Marshall Plan was, but I like when a, when a category sort of co- is specific enough that you can be like, oh, this phenomenon in history that I had never heard of, like now I feel like I know at least a little bit of something about it. Right. Right, so it's not just it's not just trivia. It's yeah. you get a little bit more to latch onto. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do get the daily double or the first daily double in the Marshall Plan at the sixteen hundred dollar level. Eric found it, uh, and he wagered five thousand. The clue is thirteen billion dollars in aid was distributed to seventeen European nations, including this new country born from a recent division. Uh, so you do need to know that it is in world war Two, which none of the other clues actually like explicitly state Ooh, yeah you're right or recent 1947 or, speech yeah in, so uh, yeah you can you can uh, assume that it's that time period but you need to but eric did know that and and correctly identified west germany and uh took the lead briefly at that point mm-hmm. although claire got it back for a little bit mm-hmm. I enjoyed books filled with different titles, um, although I didn't get Field of Dreams. I didn't know that that was... I don't know the film well, and I didn't know it was was based on a book. Oh, yeah, Shoeless Joe Uh, Jackson. Yeah, uh, but we had had another obliquely Christmas-y clue in books filled (laughs) with different titles. That's right. At the $800 level, nothing lasts forever with a cop named Leland flying out to the coast to visit his daughter at Christmas became this action film. Greatest Christmas Uh, movie of all time. That is Die Hard. I watched it for the first time last Christmas season. Oh, yeah. It's good. Yeah. It's a really good movie. Yeah, it is. It's a good movie. Yeah. Um, Plus Alan Merkman. Oh, yeah. I yeah. I saw something on on social media about uh, saying like Die Hard isn't a Christmas movie; it's actually a Harry Potter movie because it's guys sneaking around in a building hiding from Alan Rickman at night. <laughs> All right, that's legit. <laughs> um, yeah, there, I've seen some some church nerd. Uh, joking around on social media, like it was declared a Christmas movie at the Council of Nicaea. I can't believe yeah. we're fighting about this. Yeah, I saw that too. Um, I was like, nice. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I wonder. Um, in in the composers and their works category at the twelve hundred dollar level. Yes. I, were were they? Did they just feel like it was too obvious? They must have, because he gave the first four letters of his name. Yeah, the nineteen ninety six movie Shine popularized his concerto known as the rock r-a-c-h-3 um which so yeah if, that's if you're just trying rock to th- yeah think of composers like and you may not know his name and maybe they didn't know his name but yeah you know a composer whose name starts with rock it's that's yeah. it i also take issue with that clue popularize his concerto known as the rock three like it's called rock three because it's his third piano concerto he had other concertos too it's not just like, oh, he has one concerto and they call it Rock Three. The way, <laughs> uh, yeah, the way that the way that whole question was worded, I I took issue with. But it was a triple stumper. None of them rang in on that. Yeah. I was I was flabbergasted. So because they'd been avoiding, their, you know, because they went to the other categories first and finished mostly in composers and their works. Um, the third daily double was the very last clue of the round at clue number thirty. 
in the $2,000 level. Eric uncovered it and wagered 5500 which was almost enough to make it a lock game. I feel like maybe, uh, I think he meant to make it a lock game if he got it right. Yeah. Um, but I think that it, like it, he was off by like a couple hundred. Yeah, um, he, he went and, with the guess that he thought it would be. Yeah. Uh, the clue was in 1878 and 1886, he produced sets of Slavonic dances. Eric guessed Tchaikovsky. Um, the correct response is Dvorak. Yes. Um, I have yeah. played some of those. I have too. They're good pieces. Yeah. Yeah. I love Dvorak. Yes, I'm... me too. The New World is one of the reasons I wanted to learn how to write music. Huh. That in yeah. Appalachian Spring by Aaron Copeland. Mm. Those yep. were the first two pieces of music I heard that gave me chills. I was like, I want to do that. Yeah. Still quite a ways from writing anything like that, though, in my lifetime. That's okay. Well, you've got time. I've got time. I still have eight more symphonies to write before I will, uh, before I have to die. So. <laughs> yeah. just, just don't write symphonies, yeah, Kyle. Tr- just I'll write other stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so we get to the end of the Double Jeopardy round. Eric just lost 5,500, but he's still in the lead. He's at 13,500. Claire is at 12,400, and Lucy is at 8,400, which is, you know, a good score. She's within striking Mm -hmm. distance of the other two, so it's not... She's certainly not out of it. The final Jeopardy category is classic fiction. That's right. Um, And the clue is, a 1902 work says of a riverboat journey... We penetrated deeper and deeper into this, the work's title. Jeopardy writers just love them some high school required reading. Right. And we've already talked on the podcast about how we hated Heart of Darkness. Yes, yes, we have. We have, right? <laughs> yes. yes. We have. It's so horrible. How is it that long and that short at the same time? Right. Um, yeah. I also I seem to remember highlighting some like really gross misogyny, although now I can't remember. Oh, there's a ton of just yeah, I and mean, the, the the whole thing is just horrible. Yeah, um, and you you could I mean I suppose the argument could be made that that was in there to highlight how bad it is. Yeah. But ugh, but they all get um, it. Yep, good for them. And Lucy wagers three thousand. Claire wagers four thousand. 401 uh eric has made a cover bet and a little bit um with 11,500 that takes him up to 25,000 uh so he will be back on monday yeah with that's the two-day champion with 42,000 yep not a bad amount of winnings so that's our week going into the week of christmas when undoubtedly every single category will be christmas related yeah i'm calling that shot right now at least at least something in every game i'm sure right yeah i think we also continue the streak of every week having something that i uh, that either is directly relevant to hamilton the musical or something that i could get by responding with a line from hamilton (laughs) although hamilton's just a really long musical so Mm -hmm. (laughs) full of history so um but yeah i know i think it's gonna i think it's gonna be a lot of christmas next week that's okay. I'm yeah. up for it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. whatever. <laughs> yeah. It's fine. All right. So I thought that you were going to head toward the battle losers category for the deep dive, but then we talked about it, um, and you didn't seem to be avoiding mm, it. Maybe I've changed my strategy, or maybe I oh. haven't. 
It's not from the Battle right. Losers category. I actually oh, thought okay. about that, and and okay, I thought about it, and I was like, no, you know what? I talked about the Maginot Line. I've talked about the Boer War. I'm not going to talk about war this time. Even, oh, okay. even though, even though talking about San Jacinto, the Triple Stumper, talking about General Santa Anna, or talking about the War of the Roses, or even the Battle of Marathon, which was uh, again my final Jeopardy in the Tournament of Champions. Um, right. Or even could I talk about Agincourt and the uh, 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 English Longbowmen? All of those would be good deep dives, but no, I'm not going to. All right. There also was a clue about Memphis in Egypt that I wondered if you were going to head toward that one. Uh, because I got that uh, wrong in my first run. <laughs> uh, yes, and I should have gotten the rebound from you with Thebes, but I didn't. Yeah. Yeah, you said yeah. Thebes, and I was like, ah, uh, yeah, of course, the one I should have said. Yeah. <laughs> right, yes, I had I had tried to ring in with, um, in, in, that, in our game, I had tried to ring in with Alexandria, and you had gotten in ahead of me and said Memphis, and that was enough time for me to realize it was in the wrong historical period. Yeah. Um, and I think you saved me from, like, a $1,600 nag, but it was not enough time for me to recover and realize that I should go for... If it's not Memphis, it's Thebes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. But it sounds like you're not heading for that one. No, I'm not. All right. Uh, last guess, Frank Lloyd Wright. Ooh, Taliesin. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that is another one. My mom would love that. She loves Frank Lloyd Wright. Um, but no, I did not go with Frank Lloyd Wright. All right. Uh, What's the deep dive? Kyle? I went with the Wednesday show, the mm-hmm. Double Jeopardy Round World History category, the Daily Double the 14 points oh, we're gonna be talking about okay. woodrow wilson's 14 points cool i don't know anything about that yeah you mentioned that so i was like all right nice <laughs> nice 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 so in order to kind of understand where the 14 points are coming from you need to have a little bit a little bit of background now of course i know i said i wasn't going to talk about war and this isn't specifically about war but it is very much about world war one <laughs> um mm-hmm. which i feel okay talking about because i feel like world war one kind of gets forgotten um in like our our focus at least as a like as a millennial uh, now adult thinking yeah. thinking back on my education and learning like we learn a lot about world war ii and in, in for good reason because that that um the outcome of world war ii had a much greater like impact on the world we have now yeah um, world war ii also i mean we've we've developed into it at- developed it into a narrative that we understand better and feel good about right the good world war one is more confusing and convoluted Mm -hmm. yeah Um. the progression of world war ii as like a military campaign makes more sense and Mm -hmm. also having the good feeling of us being the good guys and them being the bad guys makes it easier to teach (laughs) right yeah Yeah. (laughs) whereas like you mentioned world war one is world war one was messy and the result of a whole bunch of just like just really unfortunate and not well thought out decisions leading up to that i'm not going to talk about the origins of world war one that can be an entirely different thing so world war one is going on uh began in 1914 uh between the central powers and the allied powers the central powers were germany uh austria hungary and uh the ottoman empire and the allied powers were great britain france russia 
uh, and Italy, along with other allies. Um, but the the main like the main contenders of the Allied powers were 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 the ones that I just mentioned. Uh, and so they're fighting from 1914, 1915, 1916, 1917, uh, and it's not until uh, fairly late into 1917 that the United States enters the war. We, you know, as Americans, we like to we like to kind of gloss over the amount of sitting back that we did <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and and like not getting involved, uh, but. World War One had dragged on already uh, and caused a lot of a lot of damage, a lot of a lot of death, a lot of destruction. Um, and so, in near the end of 1917, a couple of important things happen. One is the German Empire, you know, puts out a statement saying that they're going to continue with unrestricted submarine warfare, uh, which puts at risk American lives who are on, you know, British merchant vessels, French uh, civilian vessels, that sort of thing. And so Americans are being killed by German uh, submarine attacks on uh, non-military vessels. Uh, So that's an issue, obviously. There's also the Zimmermann telegram, which was a telegram from uh, the German government to the Mexican government which boils down to them basically saying, hey, if you declare war on the United States, we'll back you up because we want you essentially to distract the U.S. from getting involved over here. But it'll be cool. We'll totally have your back. Uh, Mexico was not into that. Um, <laughs> yeah. pr- pretty clearly, they were like, no, we're, we're good. But the Zimmerman telegram was intercepted and published disseminated in the United States and created a whole bunch of anti-German sentiment in the U.S. There was already a good amount of anti-German sentiment anyway because, you know, they were fighting our traditional allies of of Great Britain and France. But that that put kind of like a, a, a desire for war into the American public. And then also in 1917, Russia uh, goes through their revolution. Uh, the Tsar is uh, deposed and the royal family is killed. They have their revolution, and then lay, and then later on, uh, the Bolsheviks take over. So the Bolshevik Revolution came uh, a, a good amount of time after the initial Russian Revolution that deposed the Tsar. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Bolsheviks were unhappy with the government that was established after the Tsar was killed, uh, and so then they had their own revolution, deposing that government, took over. Uh, and the Bolsheviks had absolutely no desire to be in the war at all. Uh, Russia was losing a lot of a lot of people. They were winning some battles throughout the war against Germany, but it was at a much higher cost than the Germans. The Germans had a better uh, military structure and also significantly better technology. So uh, Russia was losing a lot. And when the Bolsheviks took over, they were like, cool, we're out. We don't want to do this anymore. Uh, so they began... Um, uh, seeking terms of an armistice with the German Empire. So the United States, seeing that Russia was out and knowing that, you know, Germany was actively trying to get, you know, trying to antagonize our neighbor Mexico and was threatening our, our uh, maritime interests, the U.S. 
chose to enter the war joining the the group of nations called the Triple Entente, which was originally Russia, France, and Great Britain. It was that main, that big main alliance that kind of <laughs> was part of the big uh, domino effect that started the whole war. So we enter the war in 1917. Uh, if you know the history of the war, uh, Armistice Day was November 11th, 1918. Mm-hmm. So we were yeah. we were only in the war for about a year of yeah. of this five year war. So going into it, President Wilson knows that he needs to begin outlining post-war ideals and, and thinking about, okay, we're going to get involved in this. How, do, how does the United States enter this conflict and not get all mixed up in, in all of that nonsense that caused this in the first place? How, how do we intervene and, and give support to certain nations without ending up you know in in these you know shouting matches between different royal houses and different you know national interests in europe which really we don't have any interest in we're sticking to the monroe doctrine we're on this side of the atlantic we don't we don't need to really care about the dealings in europe in between the nation states so that's where the 14 points kind of uh began so what he did was in september of 1917 he established a group called the inquiry which is capitalized, the inquiry. Mm. And it was led by uh, his advisor, Edward House, as well as a philosopher named Sidney Mezes. Um, and, so, and it was a, it was a group of people, politicians, historians, librarians, lawyers, a bunch of different people, uh, uh, professors who, spent uh, a few months sort of like studying the uh, the interplay of politics in Europe, uh, the history of Europe, different parts of Europe, different peoples in Europe, and they came up with a bunch of recommendations for President Wilson about like, you know, how, how, how are we going to deal with Europe when this is all over in a way that would establish a lasting peace. And that was kind of the, that was kind of the goal of of the inquiry and of the 14 points that he laid out. Um, so on January 8th, 1918, Wilson gives a speech to Congress, and in it is when he lays out the 14 points. And those 14 points are, one, open covenants of peace openly arrived at, after which there shall be no private international understandings of any kind, but diplomacy shall proceed always frankly and in the public view. Because... Uh, when the Bolsheviks took over and started suing for peace with Germany, they also started uh, just like uh, releasing a bunch of private alliances and private treaties that the Russian government had made with other allies. uh, Hmm. And that kind of, that made everyone uncomfortable (laughs) because not only, not only the, the, you know, the allies that they had had those treaties with, but pretty much everyone being like, Oh, wait, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. This is how, this is just how it's done. You can't you can't tell people the secrets. You know, if they if Russia's going to start telling the secrets, then maybe everyone else is going to start telling our secrets, you know. So uh Wilson was like, "Okay, from here on out, we just don't do that anymore. <laughs> Let's have no private international understandings." Uh yeah. point 2. Absolute freedom of navigation upon the seas outside territorial waters, alike in peace and war 
except as the seas may be closed in whole or in part by international action for the enforcement of international covenants. So he was already uh, laying out an idea of international community decisions, but also declaring, like, international waters are sacred. Like, mm -hmm. leave them alone. <laughs> you have your territorial waters and you can defend those, that's fine. But anyone in international waters, no. Uh, point three, the removal, so far as possible, of all economic barriers and the establishment of an equality of trade conditions among all the nations consenting to the peace and associating themselves for its maintenance. So just looking at economic future, making sure that, you know, this war doesn't utterly ruin a nation economically. Point four, adequate guarantees given and taken that national armaments will be reduced to the lowest point consistent with domestic safety. So this is a big point that comes up later about uh, disarmament among the, mm -hmm. among the nations. Uh, point five, a free, open-minded, and absolutely impartial adjustment of all colonial claims based upon a strict observance of the principle that in determining all such questions of sovereignty, the interests of the populations concerned must have equal weight with the equitable government whose title is to be determined. So that's a lot of words, but basically saying like, yeah, things are going to be different now. All you empires with colonies who have been fighting each other for the last five years, your colonial claims are going to be shifting around, uh, particularly looking at like the, uh, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire uh, and things like that. So, yeah. saying yeah we're gonna we're gonna have to talk about uh all of your colonial claims but also everyone who is in those colonies must also have equal weight in their questions of sovereignty which as you can imagine the colonial powers probably didn't take too kindly to that idea no of saying like i can't imagine they did yeah of course coming from the colonies makes a little more sense yeah um point six the evacuation of all Russian territory and such a settlement of all questions affecting Russia as will secure the best and freest cooperation of the other nations of the world in obtaining for her an unhampered and unembarrassed opportunity for the independent determination of her own political development and national policy and assure her of a sincere welcome into the society of free nations under institutions of her own choosing semicolon and more than a welcome assistance also of every kind that she may need and may herself desire the treatment accorded russia by her sister nations in the months to come will be the acid test of their goodwill of their comprehension of her needs as distinguished from their own interests and of their intelligent and unselfish sympathy Whew. all right so what he's saying is russia's getting out of the war they've had a change of government they are not the same nation that they were at the start of this war. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what the Bolsheviks are doing. We don't know what this communism thing is. We, we don't know anything about the future of Russia. And they're trying to make deals with Germany right now. We have to do something right away to show Russia that, like, hey, we're still good with you. We're still on your side. So basically that whole point is saying, like, at the end of this war... We're just gonna be cool with Russia. We're gonna we're gonna you know offer her the same like economic opportunities and the and the, the same fair treatment that we would any other nation, hmm. and that'll yeah. be fine. And we'll evacuate from their territory. It's their land. We're gonna get everybody out of there. I'm uh, struck by the um, the use of her for uh, for, for nations, which was which was conventional a yeah. hundred years ago, sure. and now sort of sounds kind of. Uh, um, 
antiquated a little bit. Oh, it's uh, Mother Russia. But, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, point seven. Belgium, the whole world will agree, must be evacuated and restored, without any attempt to limit the sovereignty which she enjoys in common with all other free nations. No other single act will serve as this will serve to restore confidence among the nations in the laws which they have themselves set and determined for the government of their relations with one another. Without this healing act, the whole structure and validity of international law is forever impaired. And so the the invasion of Belgium by the German Empire was what initiated uh, Great Britain declaring war on Germany, which set off the triple entente the alliance that had already been made like declaring war on germany even though russia had already declared war on hungary and so on and so forth but uh basically belgium was a sticking point uh Mm -hmm. and so this is saying like germany will get out of belgium and we will respect their sovereignty point eight all french territory should be freed and the invaded portions restored and the wrong done to France by Prussia in 1871 in the matter of Alsace-Lorraine, which has unsettled the peace of the world for nearly 50 years, should be righted in order that peace may once more be made secure in the interest of all. I mean, we could probably do a deep dive just on Alsace-Lorraine. Yeah. But yeah, the Franco-Prussian War 50 years before France, quote-unquote, lost. uh, And so the territory of Alsace-Lorraine was... uh, subsumed into germany uh but that remained a uh, real real uh real sticking point for france throughout the throughout the years uh point nine a readjustment of the frontiers of italy should be affected along clearly recognizable lines of nationality so austria hungary had been encroaching through the alps onto italian territory and this is basically saying hey do the people there speak italian they should probably be, p- be part of Italy. Point 10. The people of Austria-Hungary, whose place among the nations we wish to see safeguarded and assured, should be accorded the freest opportunity to autonomous development, which this is saying we're going to bust up the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, which is how we end up with a lot of the Eastern European nations that eventually become Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. Along with that, point 11. Romania, Serbia, and Montenegro should be evacuated. Uh, occupied territories restored, Serbia accorded free and secure access to the sea, and the relations of the several Balkan states to one another determined by friendly counsel along historically established lines of allegiance and nationality, and international guarantees of the political and economic independence and territorial integrity of the several Balkan states should be entered into. Again, saying like, yeah, that whole territory that uh, the Ottoman Empire and Austria-Hungary had essentially uh, conquered over many years uh, they should be allowed to seek their own autonomous uh, nationhood based on ethnicity, language, however they de- define themselves. Uh, point 12. The Turkish portion of the present Ottoman Empire should be assured a secure sovereignty, but the other nationalities which are now under Turkish rule should be assured an undoubted security of life and an absolutely unmolested opportunity of autonomous development, and the Dardanelles should be permanently opened as a free passage to the ships and commerce of all nations under international guarantees. Same thing as the point before, but now reaching into the Middle East and saying, yeah, Turkey can be Turkey, but everyone else, you got to leave them alone. Point And there's the Dardanelles, which we had on one of those Jeopardy episodes this week. That's, That's true. That's true. Point 13. 
An independent Polish state should be erected, which should include the territories inhabited by indisputably Polish populations, which should be assured a free and secure access to the sea, and whose political and economic independence and territorial integrity should be guaranteed by international covenant. So a lot of these things keep pointing to international covenant, international guarantees, like keep saying like the international community is it needs to be responsible for safeguarding these kinds of things and that all points to point number 14 a general association of nations must be formed under specific covenants for the purpose of affording mutual guarantees of political independence and territorial integrity to great and small states alike and that's where we get the league of nations yes from that 14th point yes i was i was just making that connection Mm mm-hmm Cool. Uh, and so the 14 points, uh, they went over really well in the United States. They did not go over super well with uh, our allies for a few reasons. Yeah. The other leader, the leaders of the other uh, allied powers at the, at the end of the war, George Clemenceau of France, David Lloyd George of the UK, and Vittorio Orlando of Italy, they were not as, uh, they were skeptical. They thought that it was a lot of idealism and it sounded nice, but the likelihood of, of that coming to pass, um, as you know, he laid it out, was pretty slim. And also, especially uh, Britain and France, but also Italy and, and like really mostly France, Clemenceau wanted war reparations. He wanted uh, Germany to pay for the damage that had been done to French uh, infrastructure, French soil and for the loss of french lives that was obviously not part of the 14 points Mm -hmm. there was nothing about reparations or anything like that but the 14 points do uh they they serve a a lot to shape the uh peace talks the paris peace talks and the treaty of versailles although a number of the 14 points did not make it into the treaty of versailles as well as the war guilt clause which mm-hmm. uh, which did require uh, reparations from Germany it, it and other uh, and the other uh, central powers as well, and so before before the peace talks were uh, initiated and and really completed, the fourteen points were actually disseminated through through enemy lands, not only allied lands but but enemy lands too. So like occupied territories and you know German citizens and others were reading the 14 points and seeing these things as like oh this is what the u.s wants this really isn't that bad we should probably just get out of this if this if this is what peace is going to look like that's really it it could be a lot worse however like i said a lot of the points didn't make it into the treaty of versailles and it was much 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 more punitive to particularly germany obviously austria hungary was no longer an empire at all uh the ottoman empire was no longer an empire at all uh and the nation of germany uh, bore a lot of the brunt of the blame for the entire war. And so what came out of that, one thing that came out of that was the what's called the uh, stab-in-the-back myth in Germany, which was a widely believed and circulated uh, idea in right-wing Germany after the First World War that, in fact, the German army didn't lose World War I, but was instead uh, betrayed by civilians on the home front. Hmm. During that time, near the end of the war, the Hohenzollern uh, dynasty was overthrown uh, and the German Republic was established. And so a lot of right-wing Germans believed that that was the cause of the 
of the German loss, not actually that the German army wasn't doing it, but in in fact, a real historical analysis looks at like they were out of resources, they had no reserves. The U.S. entered the war, and with with the U.S. entry into the war, Germany was being overwhelmed. Uh, they had done really well before, but that was going to be the end of it anyway. So, but this is a this is a narrative that you know the Nazis used to continually point to being treated unfairly to villainize everyone who's not uh you know a typical german or an aryan or whatever and even back into you know 1919 there are uh illustrations and accusations of the jews being the uh ultimate ringleaders of these backstabbers yeah uh, and the cause of all of this so anyway that's a little aside but the yeah so those are the 14 points. The Treaty of Versailles comes out, World War I ends, and, uh, and the world is just a better place afterward, and no more war happens. Mm, because the League of Nations was founded, and it was perfect and effective and wonderful. Just kidding. It, it was not. Yeah. League of Nations yeah, sucked. No. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm not going to get into the League of Nations, yeah. though. Yeah. So those are the 14 points. Nice. And that's Wilsonian, like uh, Wilsonian idealism. Yeah. I was like, oh, a lot of this is new to me. And then we got around to the League of Nations and it was like, oh, okay, that's, you know, mm-hmm. that's where that uh, was rooted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That brings us to the quiz. All right. And the topic for the quiz is 14 points. Are you ready? I- I'm a little bit terrified here where you're taking this 14 points theme, uh, but sure, why not? Let's go. All right. Question number one. I thought I'd, th- I thought I'd lobby a softball here for question number one. Warm me up. Okay. According to the book of Matthew, 14 is a significant number. There are 14 gener- generations from Abraham to which king of Israel? There are then 14 generations from him to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the exile to the coming of the Messiah. Uh, that's King David, although if you actually then count the, um, the names in Matthew's genealogy, it, it's not always the 14 that he claims. Um, but anyway, King David is the answer. Yes, that's, yeah. I mean, I'm sure you could go much more in-depth than I could on that, but yes. <laughs> yeah, all right. Ten points right off the bat. Uh, question number two. Point guard is perhaps the most specialized position on a basketball team. They are in charge of controlling the ball, setting players in motion, and executing the overall game plan of their team. Uh, point guards are typically not the tallest players on the team, and the shortest player in NBA history was a point guard. Who was this player whose 14-year career saw stints with the Charlotte Hornets, Washington Bullets, Golden State Warriors, and Toronto Raptors? Ooh. And, and um, also, I didn't write this in, but I'll mention it, also was featured in Space Jam. Wait. Um, hold on. Let me think for a second. Um, there's a name coming to mind. No. Um... You know what? No, I've got nothing. All right. Uh, that would be yeah. That would be Muggsy Bogues. Oh yeah. Okay. No, I was never gonna pull that. Okay. Good. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. Well, you still got ten points. That's all right. That's okay. Question number three. This one is gonna take a little bit of a little bit of time, probably. So I'll be okay. sure to edit stuff out. But fourteen countries border Russia. For one point each, name ten of them. Oh, jeez. All right. Without looking at a map. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't think there's one in this space that I even have to, like, avoid eye contact with. Um, 
Name ten of them. Okay. Uh, Mongolia and China. Um, right? Because China has a non-continuous border with Russia that is interrupted by Mongolia. Oh, no. No? Am I? No, no, no. No, I, you're, you're right. I'm incorrect. It actually now shares its border with 16 countries. Oh, no. Yeah, you can still give me 10. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, oh, help. Um, all of Eastern Europe is just like a big smudge in my head. <laughs> Belarus? Yeah, yes, it is. Yes. Yeah. All right. All right. All right. So I've named three. Mm-hmm. All right. There's that whole, like, a lot of the Central Asia ones must, right? Like, all right, we're going to go with a bunch of Central Asian ones, and probably I'll, probably I'll strike out on a few of these, but it's okay. Um, Kazakhstan. Yes. All right. Um, Azerbaijan. Yes. Ooh. Um, uh, Tajikistan? No. Okay, one, two, three, four, five. All right, so I have five yeses and a no. Kyrgyzstan. No. Wait, what did I... What did I say? I said I've done China, Mongolia, I did Belarus. You've done I... Mongolia, China, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, Tajikistan, and Kyrgyzstan. All right. Um, oh, Afghanistan. Does Afghanistan border? I think it does. Does it? All right. Does it? No. It bordered the USSR, which, inc- oh, which included, included those Central okay. Asian. One, two, three, four, five. All right. I've guessed eight. I've hit five mm-hmm. uh georgia yes and i've guessed nine i've hit six ukraine yes all right so you got seven out of possible ten all right not bad the others uh are north korea oh of course norway Finland, uh, Poland. There were obvious ones to go to. Yeah, uh, Poland. You said Georgia, Mongolia, Latvia, Estonia, mm-hmm. and Lithuania. Yeah. Yeah, but not bad, really. I mean, yeah. seven out of ten is pretty good. All right. I should I should have gone. I should have mentally gone up to Scandinavia. I could have gotten those and North Korea. I could have gotten Russia is really big. I don't know why. I, I mean, a lot of Central Asia. No, not a lot of Central Central Asian countries border it. I guess. Yeah, right? yeah. Because the thing yeah, is, because yeah. um, Kazakhstan is, Kazakhstan is huge, and then the other stands are on the other side of Kazakhstan. Right. Yes. From Russia. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, okay. So you're at seventeen points. Uh, Question four. Point is a unit that is often used to measure the thickness of paper. It is equivalent to what fraction of an inch? And I can give mm. you a hint if you like it. All right. Um, yeah, why don't you give me the hint? Uh, it is equivalent to another um, to another unit that is called a mill. Huh. All right. I don't know if that gets me any closer. Um, let's say one it feels like one one hundredth is too obvious i feel like if it was like a 12th or a 20th that would be way too thick to be a useful measurement for paper let's say 150th you're going with 150th i'm going with 150th it is one one thousandth oh all right i'm way off which a mill would be like 
Oh, a mill. Oh. That's one other thing. Yeah. Yes. Uh, there's... I should... Yes. I, oh. I was... For, for, for some reason in my mind, mill went to like, oh, like a, like a mill, like a... Like, like, uh, like manufacturing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a, there is another unit that is called a thou, T-H-O-U. <laughs> but I figured if I gave you that one, it'd be like, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. All right. If oh. I, yes, no, if, if I, if I had thought about it as a, as a, like a, like a root word, it's like if I, yeah, uh, yeah, I should have gotten that one. It's all right. So you're still at, you're at 17 points. Question number five. The 14 points are often remembered most for their basis in establishing the League of Nations. However, the League is often remembered as an ineffective waste of time and resources for member states. It was replaced after World War II by the United Nations, a decision, among many others, that was made by the Big Three at the first of their post-war planning conferences during World War II. Where did that 1943 conference take place? It was followed by the Cairo Conference and the Yalta and Potsdam Conferences in 1945. Hmm. So that's a long question, but the, yeah. the question is basically the first conference between uh, Stalin, Churchill, and FDR, where did that first conference take place? Like, what city? What's it called? Ooh. Okay. Um, nothing is immediately coming to mind. Um, I can give you a hint. If you'd like. Yeah, yeah, let's go for a hint. Okay. Uh, one of the decisions that was made at that uh, conference was recognizing the independent sovereignty sovereignty of Iran. Ooh. Um, I feel like I'll kick myself once you say it. I don't think it was with... My guess is that it was not within any of those three. Um, not within... Probably not within Iran either. Um, the other ones we you said were Cairo, Potsdam, Yalta. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I wasn't sure if you knew your mm. World War II conferences or not. I, I do not. Um, but I'm trying to see if thinking about those will like maybe get me another. Yeah, I've got nothing. All right. The, the clue about Iran was to guide you to Tehran. Oh, damn it. I dismissed it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Tehran popped into my head. I'm like, yeah. Uh, uh, like, for whatever reason, I like, I thought that maybe there was, uh, that I was supposed to think of Iran, or that I was supposed to, that, like, that I should have an association between that and some. And something you know, else. Some yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Right. Nope. I should have just said Tehran. Why, do, why am I giving <laughs> no answer instead of an answer? That's all right. All right. That brings us to the final. You have 17 points. All right. I will wager 16 of them. Okay. Um, all right. So here's your final question. The number 14 is encoded into much of the music of this Baroque master. He appreciated the mathematical representation of his name and sound, though the musical scale he used was a bit different than what we use here and now. Who was he? Uh, I think that was Johann Sebastian Bach. Yes, it is. Yay! Yay! Yeah, he uh, he put his name uh, into a lot of into a lot of music. Uh, so if the H is a G sharp or something, we would call it we would call it a B natural, because originally the way that uh, scales were like put together, like the, the 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 development of scales was not just like 
we're gonna write with scales now it was it was based on like you know four note uh tetrachords and then six note hexachords and like putting these things together in combinations and so eventually we get to a system that uh has full octave scales but it was it came from a, a time that did not have those full octave scales so the hmm. concept of like uh a key of, of like playing or singing in a key wasn't really established and so there are two versions of what we would call the note b so originally like what they called b we would actually think of as b flat and huh. what they called h we think of as b natural nice so that's the yeah. the bach motive is now what we would think of as b flat a c b natural um and he put okay. he puts that into a lot of his music uh it's if you add up the numbers or the letters as as far as the numbers they correspond to b is two a is one c is three uh h is eight um mm -hmm. then you get 14 oh, okay cool and uh um, yeah this uh that correct answer was brought to you by i mean i might have i might have learned it subsequently at some point anyway um but the uh classical kids program mr bach comes to call um <laughs> which is a, a cd we had around my house when i was a kid nice um yeah, so I, I knew that he liked to work his name into music. I uh, later became more appreciative of him at a, at a you know as a as a violinist and as a singer. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we uh, I took a course in grad school that it was an entire semester just analyzing his B minor mass, mm. uh, looking for all the like symbolism and mathematical like relations. It was fascinating. Yeah, I think I've sung the B minor mass. It's a good piece of music. It's a, it's ahead of its time too. Like there's some stuff in there that's way out there that would that it would sound weird like to today's audiences. Yeah. Anyway, congratulations, you got it. So you are up to thirty three points for your final hey. score. Not All bad. Right. Not it bad. could be worse. Yeah. It could be worse. Yeah. Well, uh, hopefully, listeners, you were able to get some of those uh, questions as well. That brings us to the end of our show. Thank you for yeah. listening. Uh, we really appreciate it, uh, sticking with us and spending your time with us. Be sure to subscribe and review on whatever uh, podcatcher app you use. You can find us on social media. We're on Facebook at Potent Potables, and we're on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. And you can email us at potentpotablescast at gmail.com if you have specific questions or want to get something, you know, on the show. And our website is www.potentpod.com. So we'll be coming back to you next week with another week of Jeopardy. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker.